this isn't new. And it wasn't new then. And by the same token, the thing I will never understand is people who work in the media, and these people still exist. There are fewer today than there were 10 or 15 years ago, but who work in sports media and are resistant to new ideas. The teams you cover all believe this stuff. Hello and welcome to another episode of Pod County. And guys, I am so excited for this episode. If you're like me and you're a baseball fan, you have been both missing baseball and anxiously awaiting some, if any, news, even non-news about when baseball is going to come back. And it's it has been painful. Every year go to opening day, I'm a big Orioles fan, and no opening day baseball, even when they're awful, even I... I as a long-suffering Orioles fan, even when they're awful, it's still the hope you have on opening day. It should be a national holiday. That is my hot take for this pod. Yeah, I'm missing it. But we get to talk baseball today. I promise a non-COVID-related, although we did talk about why we don't have baseball, which is COVID, but whatever, non-COVID-focused podcast today. And we have in the studio the one and only Keith Law. Keith, now the senior baseball writer for The Athletic, formerly with ESPN for over a dozen years, and before that in the Toronto Blue Jays front office at the forefront of what has become now the, the advanced metrics movement, looking at advanced stats, the different way that we evaluate baseball players now. And Keith lives here in Delaware, in Newcastle County. So he uh, joins us today to talk, to talk baseball, to talk minor league baseball, to talk major league baseball, to talk the draft and his life and... If, if you're like me and you just want to imagine for a moment that things may return to some semblance of normalcy, hopefully this fills that void a little bit for you. So sit back and enjoy this podcast interview with Keith Law. My dad has become a puzzle person, and they were trying to order a puzzle, and they said they these, this puzzle company had never been more busy in his, like, 25 years. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Cobble Hill does a lot of puzzles, and they're, like, sold out of a ton of things, yeah. and their, their factory's closed. Yeah. yeah. This. Uh, Days of Nights, they have a whole, like, back room that is nothing but puzzles. Oh. And my my in laws are uh, my in laws are from Canada, so they come out like once a year. My father in law loves to get my wife like a puzzle every time, because it's like a thing in their house, mm-hmm. the Christmas puzzle, right? And we went in days and nights. He was like, "Oh, I'll get her one here, then I don't have to fly out with it." And they had a ten thousand piece puzzle oh, no. in this back room. <laughs> and the guy, the guy who who runs, so my father in law goes to the guy, guy who runs the store. He's like, "How I've never seen a ten thousand piece puzzle." And the guy says, "I bought two of those." In 1978, and I no, sold, I sold the first one <laughs> that week. Oh my god! And I've had man. this one ever since. Yeah. And now that I have all the time in the world, I'm kind of like, man, I wish they were open. I'd go look at that <laughs> 10,000 piece puzzle. It might be worth getting into right now. My uh, wife sent me the picture of the Heinz ketchup. Have you seen that? It's just a big red square. Oh God, no, <laughs> no. I said That's you're awful. not allowed to text me anymore. That's torture. Yeah, there it is. Oh my God. <laughs> All right, you ready to get started, Kyle? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. yeah. All right, so welcome to Pod County. Welcome to another good, quick succession episodes. We did one last week. We're doing one this week. You wouldn't know we were in a pandemic. We have got Keith Law in. I'm stoked because I got my Orioles jersey on. I am so ready for baseball. Keith Law, the, the senior 
head, what's your official title? Senior baseball writer. Senior baseball writer at The Athletic. Fantastic sports platform. I have a lot of former journalist friends who work there now, former colleagues. It has gone out and acquired the best talent in the industry, and I think that's certainly true. In your case, you were before that with ESPN for 13 years, 13 years, and then before ESPN uh, with the Blue Jays. Yep. So, and then what was before the Blue Jays? Non-baseball jobs. I did some freelance writing for ESPN before the Blue Jays and for Baseball Prospectus. But the Toronto, when I joined Toronto in 2002, that was my first full-time baseball job. Nice, nice. And yeah, and then, and and now Delawarean. Yes, for seven years, almost seven years. For seven years, for seven years. We also have with us Brian Cunningham, our director of communications here at the county. Brian has a history in sports, formerly with the Eagles in their front office doing communication. So Brian, mm-hmm. also a giant baseball nerd like <laughs> so many of us. So yeah, I'm, I'm stoked. I'm so ready to talk baseball. Keith's also got a new book out, uh, which we have copies of in here somewhere. Brian's got a hardback copy. He's got a soft copy, The Inside Game, follow-up to, when was the last book? It was 2017. Yep. And this one, tell me, tell me a little bit about the difference between Smart Baseball and the Inside Game. What, what, what are you looking at now? So Smart Baseball was the first book. It was strictly about baseball, particularly baseball statistics, how the numbers that a lot of us grew up with really tell a very incomplete and often inaccurate story about the game and about individual players especially. So to try to give people a sense of what numbers you can easily look at that might give you a more accurate picture of how players are performing or how they're likely to perform in the future, and also give you a bit better idea of what front offices are doing. Now, they have access to more data, um, more sophisticated raw data that allows them to create more sophisticated metrics of their own, but at least I could acquaint people with the general thinking, even if I can't actually show you the secret sauce that the Orioles are using, for example. Whereas the new book, I tried to go in a different direction. It's also a baseball book, but in in some sense, not a baseball book. It's very much about behavioral economics or cognitive psychology, ideas that people in front offices are using now to try to make better decisions. And I try to use many of these concepts of, co- they're called cognitive biases, just errors in everyone's thinking. If you're human, you make these mistakes. Try to use those to explain some pretty big blunders in baseball history, from GMs making bad decisions to managers doing it, uh, even talking about why umpires are just always going to be bad at calling balls and strikes, for example, and how that you can explain that using anchoring bias or thinking the other way, you can explain anchoring bias by talking about this umpire problem. So you could just read this as just a baseball book. Or if you want to learn more about these cognitive biases, I explain them using baseball examples, which I think makes it more interesting. I think, well, for me, I grew up a Baltimore sports fan. I grew up in Maryland. Mm -hmm. And the Orioles were, I was born in 88, so the Orioles were really all I had right. until 96 when the Ravens showed up. So I, I was in, I was inherently uh, an Orioles fan and, and a baseball junkie as a little kid because that was it. But even when the Ravens came, like, I I'm, I think I'm probably more uh, like a, I'm more of a yell at you kind of football <laughs> fan, but I'm probably a more diehard baseball fan. Mm-hmm. And a lot of it's because of that deeper statistical metric layer to it and and the deeper and it's not just on the field right it goes into every aspect of it when you're trying to evaluate player talent at the minor league and college and high school levels all the way through you know how do you structure a contract and you know that that kind of stuff really for me I don't know it's probably because I'm a giant nerd but really really what I love and I think maybe that expanded to a lot of casual fans when 
Moneyball became such a big hit. Yes. I think that was kind of the window into this new thinking for a lot of people. For you, as someone who's been inside the game for a long time, for um, I guess tw- almost 20 years yeah. now, where have you seen the general public's willingness to kind of look at baseball differently? Moneyball's publication in, what, 2003 or 2004? It might have been in 2004. It was about 2003. So that, because it was Michael Lewis, who was already a best-selling author and who kind of had access to a mainstream audience through his name, through his publisher, he really, that book in particular opened people's minds a lot more than anything had previously. Bill James had been writing about this stuff for 20 years before that and had acquired sort of a cult audience, but we were still niche. We were still very much outside of the mainstream, whether you're talking about front offices or whether you're talking about just the way that the media and the fans thought about the game. When I joined the Blue Jays in 2002, the media were still extremely retrograde, just very traditionalist, um, very anti-intellectual, and frankly, not coincidentally, very much old white men. This is how we've always talked about the game. We are the gatekeepers of information. We are the experts. And how dare anybody come along and question this or provide a different way of thinking? Well, when Lewis wrote Moneyball, and I'm just referring to the book. The movie is a separate issue. The movie stinks. But the book is, book is good. Um, the book is always better than the movie. That's that just is a, like a wall. I can list probably on one hand the number of times the movie has been better than the book, which just goes to your point that like I can name those, whereas there are thousands in the other direction. When the book came out, it did a couple of things. One is it just opened up the mainstream, you know, the fans eyes to, wait, teams are thinking differently. Oakland's, Oakland's spending no money and they're finding success. And here's you know, some of the inner workings. Here's what they're trying to do. And people in the business world could read that and say, hey, this makes sense, right? When the rest of the industry is going one direction and you are underfunded relative to your competitors, you have to try something different. But I would even hear stories of owners going to their GMs and putting a copy of Moneyball on the desk and say, why aren't we doing this? Why don't we have a stats department? Why don't we have a stats person? At that point, you needed to just hire one person. I was that person for Toronto. Other teams started doing the same thing. They would hire one person, and then, of course, one would become two and become five, and now it's 20 for some teams. But that, I think, really burst the, you know, sort of didn't just open the door, but knocked it down completely because it never stopped from there. And the second thing that helped after that, around 2005 or 2006, I think 2005, Major League Baseball introduced Pitch FX, which is the preceding system to StatCast now. But it was data, flat file, that you could, they, they made it free for everybody to use, even publicly, that had information on every pitch thrown in a Major League season. And suddenly, some teams at least said, we have this new data, we should do something with this. There is opportunity here to find out things we never knew before, maybe find players who we would have overlooked previously, but we'll find something out about them through this data that makes us realize they're more valuable than we thought, or, or we could see they were valuable, we couldn't explain why, because traditional scouting said no. Now this would give more information to say, oh, this is why this pitcher's fastball is more effective, even though it's only 90.5 miles an hour, something like that. Once that data started, coming, it was never going to stop. Because teams started using it, finding new value. People would leave those teams, go work for other teams, and say, well, this is how we did it over in Cleveland. Let's do that here in Milwaukee. And eventually that would spread enough around the league to the point where you only had a few holdouts left. The Phillies were one of the last teams to 
establish a real analytics department. But when Matt Clintac got hired, the, that was the first thing he did was 28 other teams are doing this. We can't not do this. Mm-hmm. You have to do this even just for competitive reasons. That's, that's the other thing is in mm-hmm. professional sports, especially at the highest level, every advantage needs to be looked at or, right. or needs to be taken advantage of. If you, if you, like, why would you not look at film? Right. Yeah. <laughs> if what, it's is sitting this, right there. To, I always say, <laughs> in what other industry other than sports did these things happen where you're, you know, in a competitive industry, you say, well, we don't, we don't want to do the best things our competitors are doing. Like, best demonstrated practices was a term I learned in management consulting 20 six years ago when I first got out of college. This isn't new, and yeah. it wasn't new then. And by the same token, the thing I will never understand is people who work in the media, and there's, these people still exist. There are fewer today than there were 10 or 15 years ago, but who work in sports media and are resistant to new ideas. The teams you cover all believe this stuff. You don't really have the right to not be aware of it. You can disagree, but you can't remain ignorant of it. You cannot be out there preaching pitcher wins or fielding percentage when the team you cover, I don't care who you cover, the Batting whole average. league, they're all past <laughs> yeah, this. If right. you're using pitcher right. wins for anything, that has got to be the worst stat in the history of stats. It's. I would go with the save oh, because yeah, the, yeah. Save really? did, the save did more damage. The save changed how teams used pitchers and how teams built rosters mm. and created this whole idea of the one-inning closer. And I don't think that's done anyone any good, including the pitchers. It's made a few pitchers very wealthy, so I guess it's done them some good. Mm-hmm. But I think the the paradigm of bullpen usage that we've had since the advent of the one-inning closer 30 years ago has probably just gotten more guys hurt Yeah, because it's like, no, it's a safe situation. He has to pitch. Well, he's pitched the last two days. I don't care. He's the closer. He has to pitch today. Most guys can't survive that kind of usage or just can't survive it for long. And so you get these very short, most closures just don't last. They'll have a short peak, and then they'll break down or wear down, and they'll just get replaced by somebody else. So I would, I would imagine you're a fan of the new non-specialist rule. The, the relief pitcher has to face X number of batters. I was okay. So they made it three, mm-hmm. right? You have to face at least three batters. I was okay with two. My big thing is the mid-inning pitching change. I want to see fewer mid-inning pitching changes because a lot of them are not needed. And it kills the tempo of the game, That's too. Yes. And this happens in college a lot. Like, it's 5-1 in the top of the ninth. Why are you going for the lefty specialist? Like, settle down. That's sure. the stuff that drives me nuts as a fan, not even speaking as a member of the media or as an analyst or anything. Just as a fan, that's when I reach into my bag. I always have a book with me. Anyway. <laughs> I have a book in the car right now. I just didn't bring inks. I knew we weren't. I wasn't going to be I'm glad you're it. not reading a book during our interview. No, no. usually I'm waiting, right? You go <laughs> right. anywhere, you're right. waiting for right. something. Doctor's office, grocery store, right. whatever. Especially now where we're waiting in lines to go into the grocery store. Right. If I'm by myself, I have a book. So that goes. It knocks, it, it knocks totally. you out of the game if you're, yes, you're saying right. you're yes, at the I game. Yes, I bring the book out of the, uh, I, I have the book in my scouting bag. And that's when I reach for that because it's, Three minutes minimum till we resume. It's like when there's a fight. When there's a fight at a right. baseball game, I'm right. like, I'm out. I was here for the baseball. I right. wasn't here for the sweet science stuff. Just, I'm, I'm here for the. But not, that's not a fan of the brawls. No, it's stupid. It's stupid. Grow up. Grow up. Come on, guys. Can I, uh, can I take you back to 2002 when you were, sure. you know, looking at, I guess you were, you were in the, in the beginning of the analytics. In yeah. Major, major. We were, we were pretty early. We weren't the first, certainly. Right. But we were early. Agreed. So 
you were working in private industry or private yeah. corporations. How do you end up? And people would ask me this about my job. How did I end up, you know, in a in a NFL team? Mm-hmm. And it's usually dumb luck and a couple of weird. Were you at a winter meeting? Where, where, what were you doing to end up with the Toronto Blue Jays? The shortest version. I mean, dumb luck is absolutely the number one reason. But the shortest version is I knew some of those guys in Oakland mm-hmm. because they one because they were reading us at Baseball Prospectus mm-hmm. and ESPN, which is a mandatory if you're in a fantasy baseball or rotisserie baseball, whatever. And so, especially then, mm-hmm. that was it. Now mm-hmm. there's lots of sites, right? And it's not the first destination, I would say, if you're right. looking for analytics-focused writing. But at the time, it was the only destination for it. And ESPN started to sort of get into that because there were people at ESPN who were very open to, like, you know, they had the Insider subscription product. It was one of the only sites that asked you to pay back then. Mm-hmm. So they said, we need to differentiate ourselves. So that's why they were reaching out to other, other writers. And that was one reason. And there were a couple of guys in Oakland who went to the same college I did. Paul DePodesta was a year behind me, and Dave Forrest, who's still there as the GM, was two years behind Paul. So at one point, all three of us were at school at the same time. And so I got to know them just kind of through the alumni network. It was Theo Harvard guy too? Yale. Yeah. Safety school. Got it. <laughs> uh, so Ouch. we were all there at the same time, and so had that sort of natural connection. We just talked. We weren't incredibly close, but we talked. And so when one other member of that front office went to Toronto, J.P. Ricciardi, I had kind of a bit of a natural connection with many, many people in common. And so J.P. was looking for someone to do the job he eventually hired me to do. I was at a point in my life and career where I was open to taking a risk like that. And it just kind of the timing of everything just sort of worked out incredibly well. And even though it wasn't the ideal experience there necessarily in Toronto, and by the time 2006 rolled around, I was ready to get out. I didn't like a lot of things about it. I'm also incredibly grateful for the fact that that opportunity taught me a ton and enabled me to move to this career, which is the one I really feel like I belong in. Backing up, young, young Keith, mm-hmm. tell me about where, where were you born? What, how did you, what, what was your focus when you went to school, when you were growing up? What did you want to be? I was born on Long Island and grew up there. Lived in the same house until I was 17, left for college. I was not an athlete. I was very much a student. Liked kind of all. I didn't like school. I liked learning, and would often just teach myself stuff. Probably loved math more than anything. Just spoke it. Like it was just very natural to me. It still drives my daughter crazy. And my daughter's good at math, but she's like, "How do you do that in your head?" I'm like, "I don't know. I don't know." Right? I've been just doing it. Right? I could look at a quadratic equation and be like, "Oh yeah, I got that." She's like, I don't understand. I'm like, I don't know either. It mm-hmm. just, right? I don't know how I can still do that. It's not like I use quadratic equations in baseball. We don't really square anything in baseball. That's one nice thing. It's a lot of linear math. <laughs> I, as, but in terms of what I wanted to be, I never really decided on anything. So, oh, I should be, because people were constantly telling me I was the, you know, the good student. Oh, you should be a doctor. Oh, you should be a lawyer. Oh, you should be this. You should be that. Okay. I didn't know anything. And I was the youngest student in my class the whole way up through grade school, too. So I was very suggestible. And it's like, oh, you should be a, you should be a neurologist. You should be a neurosurgeon. That's what all the smart people do. Okay, sure. Didn't really have a grasp of what any of that stuff meant. The funny thing is, I don't know that there was ever a point in childhood where I said I wanted to be a writer. And yet now I can't imagine being anything else. Yeah. No, I was same same scenario when I was in school. Oh, you should be an engineer. You should go to go to the Naval Academy. Be a be an airspace engineer. Be a go to Maryland. Do blah blah blah. And I was fine. And then I took a photography class nah. to fill out a schedule, right? Yep. 
And I was like, no, this is this way, this is way more. The first time I saw, a, uh, and I've, I've talked about this on the podcast before, but the first time I saw something that I had seen show up on a piece of paper in, yep. in the liquid, and here's this thing, like, that blew my mind. I'm like, ah. no, I'm, I'm hooked, right? And I'm sure the same thing, right? When you see, like, something that you thought of on paper and other people react to what you've It's the written. reactions. Yeah. Right? That's still true. Yeah. I got, um, I won't say who, but a, a well-known writer outside of the sports world reached out to my publicist over the weekend and just sent a very nice note directed to me, asking, you know, please forward this to Keith, really praising the inside game. There's no describing the feeling, especially because this is a writer whose work I've read and who I really respect, that he praised this book meant a tremendous amount to me. Because, I mean, I, I don't know how much listeners know about this, but for a lot of folks, especially if you publish with a major publishing house, like the money I get from writing this book is the advance that I get, which I've gotten three quarters of it now. The, the remainder comes to me when this comes out in paperback. That's probably all the money I'll ever get from the book. It has to sell a certain number of copies and there would be additional royalties. But I have been paid for the work up front. So, you know, what I can get from it now is, is that, that sort of psychic value of people praising the book, especially people whose opinions really matter to me, people within the baseball industry or writers from other fields, but whose writing I really respect or whose other aspects of their career I really respect. And it's that kind of feedback that really drives me and it provides the satisfaction because that's, otherwise it's just, I wrote words for money. And I mean, that's true. Obviously, that's what I do for day job, but that only gets you so far, especially with the amount of work that is required to write any book. I'm sure some people just do it for the money, but that's kind of not enough. It, I can't imagine. I can't imagine trying to write something like that yeah. for the dollar. I guess at some point when you're, you know, you got 10, 15, 20 books in and the words just kind of fall out of your head. And yeah, maybe they're not so much work. I mean, I don't think James Patterson puts a lot of work into his books, right? <laughs> Aren't they all exactly the same? Um, where he just hires out other people to write books and publishes them under his name. Fine. That's a business model. That's his choice. It's not me, certainly. And I, you know, if I get to that point where I'm just writing for the dollar, I'm probably doing the wrong thing. I guess I'm really lucky in that 13, 14 years in, that's not me. And then I was able to write two books. And there were definitely points where it's like, I have to get this done so I can get paid. <laughs> but it's just not enough, especially because I was not relying on this book to feed the family, too. I have a day job. Mm -hmm. I was writing this on the side. So it added to the challenge because I was trying to write this as I was also trying to maintain a day job. But the flip side is, you know, I didn't have that specific pressure of I do this or we don't pay the mortgage. Right? Yeah. I'm sure for people who just write books, that's a different feeling where I have to complete this so I get the check so it pays for that. I am privileged that I'm able to say it's positive feedback that's driving me more than the uh, need for the advance check. I've always felt like at the when you reach the point that your name on the book is bigger than the title of the book, <laughs> then you've probably stopped putting a lot of effort into what's That's, in the book. Could you know? be, that could very well be true. Okay, yes, I am not at that point. I'm looking at the book now. My my name is in sm much smaller font. Yeah, you're yeah. you're probably <laughs> rocking like a 24 point font on that name compared to like at least a 72 what, point font. What font is that, by the way? It was like a nice Helvetica. I was going to say, it's, as long as it's not Comic Sans. Yeah. <laughs> oh, my God. That should be a crime against humanity. Yes. You're not a kindergarten teacher. Using, yeah. I have seen people, like, 
like write important things yeah. in Comic Sans, like in government. No, well, the, the Cleveland that's the Cavaliers when LeBron manager? left. Yeah, the he, owner. The owner. Gilbert, right? Yes, that's it. That's but it. he did that on purpose. I don't know. So he yeah. said. Gilbert, <laughs> I don't, here's the thing, right? It's not like the president, people saying the president was just oh, being sarcastic. Yeah, well. Uh, uh, okay. Dan, Dan Gilbert, like, lost his mind with that. I still have, in my basement, one of the LeBron James, I'm not even a Cavs, I went to school in Ohio, not remotely a Cavs fan. All my roommates were huge Cavs fans. It drove me insane. Um, especially because I was a Wizards fan at the time, and it was the one time the Wizards were good. Ah. The Arenas, Butler, Jameson era. Um, Those are names. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I don't know good. the sport. That's good. Yeah, so. um, but I, the, he, he took all the remaining, because I think he also owned Fathead, all the remaining LeBron James Fatheads that they had and sold them for 1760 or 1778 or something like that because it was the year Benedict Arnold <laughs> was caught by the Revolutionary Army betraying. So when between that and then the Comic Sans release, it was like he has lost all sense of reality. Yeah, not not his best. No, no, that was uh, that was a stretch. So anyway, back to Keith Law. Sure. So so you could have been anything. You could have been a contender. You now I'm a bum. <laughs> you you were leaving high school, and where do you go, and what do you major in? Uh, went to the Liberal Arts College in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Um, majored, started out as a government major, which is their equivalent to political science. They don't have political science. And I would say government, they're, one of the problems I had in their government major, which I stuck with for just a little over a year, was that it's more political philosophy and it meant reading a lot of very old texts, all written by old white men. And... I love to read. I read about 100 books a year. That killed me. I think it was Samuel Huntington's Clash of Civilizations. I was like, nope, nope, <laughs> we're done. <laughs> and we're done. And we're done. And we're done. We're going to go do something else. Um, wanted to switch to straight economics, but because of the various class requirements, like just basically technical difficulties, I couldn't do straight economics and still graduate on time. So I switched to sociology and economics as a joint major, um, which allowed me to get all 15 classes I needed to be done and still get all the core requirements. You just don't have a lot of choice at this school that shall not be named. And so did that, graduated, went to work for a management consulting firm for a couple of years. Didn't love it. It was, you know, a good experience. It was a good work experience. It was not a good experience on a personal level. That kind of job is a bit, they're sort of using you up and spitting you out. You're paid well for that. So I can't complain too much. However, like it was certainly not intellectually stimulating work. Wasn't sure what I wanted to do, but a lot of my colleagues there went to, left for, or had already gone to business school. And I thought, well, this is something I could probably be good at, good at math, good at money stuff. I went to business school at the Tepper School at Carnegie Mellon, had another name at the time. It's now the Tepper School. Spent two years there and left and ended up, you know, there's kind of peak of the tech boom I graduated in 99, went to work for a series of startups. You know, first two really never went anywhere. The last one eventually got bought, and I got a tiny amount of money from that. But none of it worked out. None of it was great for me personally. None of them really allowed me to do things I was really good at. And then this Blue Jays opportunity came along just sort of just the right time when I was like shortly after 9-11, actually. So the economy was kind of in flux at that point. And that also made me more willing to just say, maybe I should just 
do this and try it. And I mean, if it doesn't work, it doesn't work. Am I that much worse off a year from now if I've gone and done this? They gave me a one-year contract to go be a full-time, or my title was, was the stats consultant, but I was a full-time employee. And after the first year there, they gave me another contract to stay for a couple more years. And I stuck that out. And then heading into 2006, my wife at the time, now ex-wife, was pregnant with my daughter, and I needed better work-life balance, more stability. I looked around, and I said, you know, if this guy, my GM, my boss, gets fired, I'm out too. Sure. And then, and then what? So had written for ESPN previously, had some contacts there, reached out in December, December of 05 or January of 06, saying, you know, kind of thinking about leaving. Uh, would you guys be interested in having me come right full time? It turned out they were looking for somebody to do kind of the job I ended up taking. I mean, I think the job changed when I got into it, and I sort of said I can do these things, and we sort of redefined the job around my skill set. But it was, again, sort of very fortunate timing. They were looking for somebody to do that, and it worked. I went there, and it, it worked. It was successful, and people liked what I was doing and were willing to pay for it. And I think the one thing I will sort of take a little credit for is this idea of the scouting writer I think I was the first. Now there are others, and that's great. I mean, I think that's a testament to the work that people around me at ESPN enabled me to do, that the editors I worked with allowed me to do, and also the fact that the audience was smarter than anyone gave them credit for. They liked you know, more evidence-based writing like that, whether it's first-person observation or it's analytics. Turned out there was a really big market for this kind of writing, and there still is. There's probably five of us now who do this full-time or something very similar to this full-time across multiple sites, and we're all doing it, and we're all waiting for baseball to come back, obviously, but we're <laughs> like, we exist because there is a market for that many writers. Yeah, I think the fans want it. Mm-hmm. The the fantasy sports players want it. Yes. I think teams will maybe not admit to it, but oh, they, they probably read it. They probably, they definitely, when oh, they I worked, read it. They, when I worked they tell the me NFL, at least. Yeah, when yeah. I worked in the NFL, all the players would say, we never read the clips. That's Everyone got clips. Yeah, they oh. all the front office the people clips. do. I don't, I don't know about players. <clears throat> the front they, office people do. I actually, so I put up my first mock for this year's draft. I saw it. I read it today. And so my my mocks are usually Where'd very you have me going? driven. You are not going to be driven. It's, <laughs> it's a five, short. It's only five rounds this no. year. If it was still Sorry. the fiftieth round, though, it's not yeah. eight hundred and seventy-four rounds. Um, and so you know, my mocks are. I try to make them very much driven by what I hear from teams scouts and executives, and to a lesser degree from agents also. And so like, I think they're usually pretty informed. They're not, I would never claim to accuracy, but I think that usually they're in the right direction. Now this year, we didn't even know when the draft was going to be actually until less than a week ago. Mm-hmm. So I freely admit this year's first mock was less informed than usual. And I think there's a point in there, in there where I look and I say, that's where I'm making educated guesses, but it's more educated guesses than real information. Well, sure enough, there was a particular player who I did not have going in the top 29 picks. And I don't think the mock had been up for an hour before I got a phone call from his agent. Excuse me, his advisor. Advi- yeah. Yeah. Right. Family right. advisor. And I'm not saying he was even wrong. Mr. Boris, But I it was I'm like, busy. it was not Scott. <laughs> I, do talk, I have talked to Scott Boris I'm on Pod times. County right now. I can't talk to <laughs> you. Uh, People don't give Scott enough credit. He is actually... I find him generally a pleasure to talk to because he's really smart. Yeah. Really smart. I mean, he's, he's rewritten the book. Yes, he has. Yep. And on, his... On this. Look, his ideas will generally serve 
the interests of his clients or the interests of his agency, sure. and that's fine. That's his job. But it also means he comes up with ideas that a lot of other people don't, and to me, that is extremely useful. And jealous. Creates a lot of jealousy. Absolutely. Mean, the, the Bryce Harper move uh-huh. of putting him in JUCO, taking him, what, didn't he take him out, yeah. of, take him out of high school, put him in JUCO for a year? There was no point to him waiting. He was ready at 15. <laughs> if it had been legal for him to sign at 15, he could have. And certainly if he were a player born in the Dominican Republic, he would have gotten a record-setting bonus on his 16th birthday. But he would have been 34. <laughs> oh, no, no. Yikes. Hot, hot yeah. takes from Brian. Yeah, maybe, maybe not so much with the, with the yeah. Maybe not, not that yeah. big of an age gap. Yeah, we don't really, that's not really a thing anymore. Okay. So. Well, um, finger, I hope yeah. not. Yeah, but so anyway, the mock had been up for maybe an hour, and this agent reached out. And I'm not even saying he was wrong necessarily. Could his player go in the, this particular player grow in the first round? Sure. Absolutely would never tell you, I know for a fact he's not going in the first right. round. Oh, not sure. this kid. Yeah. There's some kids where I'm like, no chance. Not this kid. Me, this kid could absolutely go instance. in the first round. But I was at least able to say, here are two bits of evidence why I did not have him going in the first round. And at least we could have a civil discussion around that and around why there are certain trends going on, especially this year. It's five-round draft. Teams are strapped for cash right now because they don't have revenue coming in. They're, like, financially overall, they're fine. Cash flow is very limited. We still don't know when games are going to come back. And plus, no one's been able to scout players. Right. You know, there are – there's the kid, Nick Bitsko. He's up in Bucks County, Pennsylvania. Mm-hmm. Never pitched in a game. He threw one bullpen for scouts. I think that's all. There, he may have done a private workout is he, for an is individual. He- High school? He's high school. He had reclassified. He was going to be class of 2021, and he reclassified to graduate this year because he was older. Right. It's generally a good strategy, especially if, if you're a pitcher. My gosh, go out and get what paid. Do we, what do we possible. think about drafting pitchers in the first round from high school, Keith? Uh, I am not a fan, <laughs> as it turns out. If you've read, what, page three or yeah. four of your book? Yep. The book? Yes. The Inside Game? Follow-up yep. to... I'm holding the book up to no cameras. To nobody seeing yeah. it. Yes. So just a, just yeah. a Kyle. But I use that. Bad, bad radio, Brian. <laughs> I bad use radio. That. Theater I, of the mind. That's all I use our theater of the I mind. discuss uh, base rate neglect uh, to explain why it is a f- why it is flawed. Not uh, Some people have, have misinterpreted this as I've talked about the book. saying ne- I'm not saying never take high school pictures in the first round, but I do say the industry as a whole takes more than they should. Mm-hmm. Now, last year, I think we only had – three high school pitchers go in the first round. It was not a great high school pitching class last year, but if that's a trend, it's probably the right one. We should be taking fewer high school pitchers in the first round. This year, my mock yesterday, I only had one going in the first round because it's a really good college class, and teams are terrified. They don't want to risk. You know, In this year, of all years, I'm not going to risk taking the high school pitchers the riskiest class of player in the first round. When I, I'm sorry to interrupt No, you. that's um, fine. That's fine. When, when I was reading that, chapter i kept going back to then you're gonna maybe it's just what round because when i think if you know if i'm a general manager and i'm looking at a pitcher who's been through four years of high school four years of college three years of college mm-hmm. the mileage on that arm it's a concern for sure but yeah you know, and you, we talked about college coaches who would run pitchers out there that's yep. nine, ten innings in one. I think one example you gave. Oh, the Austin Wood. Was Mike that like Belfiore 14 game. innings yes. or something like a that? A relief pitcher like, who had not gone more than an inning and a third the entire season through 13 innings. And sure enough, blew out his shoulder later. 
And the coach who actually, you know, Augie Garrido um, is since, has since passed away, mm-hmm. but I like wrote him and the other coach, Mick Aoki, who's now the head coach at Notre Dame, pretty hard for mm-hmm. a long time. Like, you did this. Yeah. You knew it was wrong, and you didn't care because you knew in a month both pitchers would be somewhere else. That's the moral hazard. That's moral hazard. Yeah. It's like, I don't care if I break him. Right. In fact, coaches have an incentive. College coaches' true incentive is to basically get every last drop of blood they can from every player. And if they break down the day they enter pro ball or just graduate, so what? Not not my problem. problem. And there's nothing anyone can do about it. And that's, you know, I've heard stories and I've actually been part of them where coaches will purposely not nominate players for postseason awards, especially in the Northeast where scouts, they're scouts in the Northeast, but Mm -hmm. they purposely don't nominate players for postseason awards, especially if they're juniors or sophomores, because that raises their profile and that means they're gone a year earlier or two years earlier. Yep. So, you know, there's, you know there, there could be infighting between a college SID who says, Keith Hall hit 15 home runs last right. year. Why are he, we not? He should be all, he should be all, all conference first base. And he's like, so right. I, I, I look. Nobody's at, heard of him, and I prefer not to put pe- put him on the radar. So that's part of why teams using stats. Like we, I mean, when I was with Toronto, it was really just a matter of co- collecting the stats. But now they have better data on a lot of these college guys. Those guys aren't slipping through the cracks anymore. Right. Right. You can't hide that guy. The right. Cardinals uh, and the, you know the group that went from the Cardinals to the Astros, some of whom are now with the Orioles. They made a lot of created a lot of value by finding some of those guys in later rounds, by finding you know, small college relievers, who small college pitchers who could become major league relievers and sign for a grand in the 30th round. Now you can't really do that anymore because all teams are looking for those guys, which is part of why I think ultimately we'll never see a 40-round draft again. I think after this, they'll go, they might go back to 20, but you know, I had an executive tell me, we don't need a 40-round draft because the guy you're taking in the 30th round there are no secrets down there anymore. Right. If you got a guy in the 30th round who ends up in the big leagues now, it was some super raw high school kid where, you know, he just exceeded all expectations where there's or no, you just got lucky. Where there's yet. no broadband internet. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> no one You do get like those kids out of, you know, um, it's actually not the, the not what you'd think. It's not the like, deep south or anything. It's the cold weather kids. Mm-hmm. Those are the ones where we just didn't see them. The so North much. Dakota. Yeah, there was like, a kid yeah. in the, we'll see if he turns into anything. The White Sox signed a kid a couple of years ago in the 33rd round. Two years ago, Bryce Bush had a huge first summer. They ran him out to full season ball last year and he just wasn't ready. Now we'll see. We'll see when they, obviously he has to play again. Sure. He's only 20 at this point. But he was from, I think, from Michigan. He just wasn't scouted a lot. He probably, when he was scouted, what was he facing? A couple of kids throwing 68 miles an hour? Like, those guys are really hard to evaluate. In 40-degree weather, 35-degree right. weather. Or, or, and teams just, you don't even want to go see those guys until the second half of April. Yeah. So you get about a month. And the scout doesn't want to sit there and freeze his butt off. Playing no. on a field with no outfield <laughs> fence. You know. and if I you mean, it's like, a lot of Delaware field, right? Yeah. And this is a little inside baseball, but if you're the area scout and Michigan is part of your territory, you probably also have Ohio and Indiana, too. Yeah. So how much are you going to drive way up into the, even into the LP of Michigan, when you probably got a bunch of other college guys you need to go back and see anyway. Right. So there's natural inefficiencies to some of those cold weather areas. You'll still see some of those kids, late round picks blossom like that. There aren't that many of them. And you know what? If you shorten the draft to 20 rounds and the area scout really likes that Bryce Bush kid from Michigan, you'll sign him in the 17th. We're not going to lose that kid. The other thing about changing the length of the draft 
might have something to do with the contraction of minor league baseball teams. Oh, there's there's no coming. question. It, Major League Baseball is trying to hit that both ways, right? If we reduce the number of teams, we can just shrink the draft. And if we shrink the draft, we can say, well, we don't need these teams anymore. We don't have the players. Yeah. So it works both ways. Major League Baseball is going to ultimately get what it wants on minor league contraction and realignment. I am with them about half to t- maybe two-thirds of the way, but that last one-third, I'm way out. There's a, a lot of what they're doing that I really disagree with including the complete elimination of short-season leagues, mm-hmm. like Aberdeen. Mm-hmm. They will still have a team. They're going to end up in a full-season league. But that league they're in now, the New York Penn League, I think is great. I think yeah. it's great for scouts. I think it's great for players. You may need to move or eliminate some franchises. But if a major league team wants to still operate at a minor league affiliate at that level, they should have the right to do so. And I'm afraid that that's going to go away entirely. Well, and being able to take your draft pick, especially your your top, you know, five-round guys, and yeah. send them straight there. Your college guys. Your college guys. Yeah, yeah for, for sure. sure. Your college guys. Yep. Because uh, you're going to send the high school guys to rookie ball. To or, GCL. Or yeah. GCL. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, for sure. To GCL. You know, it's, it's funny talking about those later rounds. And so our former former intern, Sam, Sam Komet, she's now, I think right now, probably running a live stream for the governor. He, he moved on to the governor's office oh, this, okay. this winter. But Sam was a... I think a 26th round draft pick of the Cardinals. Oh, okay. Out of Winthrop, oh, and yeah. then blew his arm out, and as one does, and that was and that was it. But I was texting Sam, and he was super super bummed that he he wasn't here today because he was he was oh. a big fan. So doors just, always open, Sam. So talking about later round guys, I mean, not he, literally. I was gonna say, as he, long as he stands six feet away, but right, he, he really fit that mold of like you know smaller guy. Yep. And signed for know. a grand probably. Was he? He was probably a senior. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And yeah. then sign for a grand, and then you'd send him. Now, a kid like that, you might send to the Gulf Coast League, but otherwise, you could. Like they were, they have a team in the Appalachian League. They could have sent him there. You know, those those, the level between the Gulf Coast League and the Sally League. So, like between the GCL Orioles and Delmarva, the Delmarva Shorebirds, everything between there just goes away. Sure. And the Orioles have two affiliates. They had Bluefield, I think, was still them in the Appalachian League, and Aberdeen. Those just go away. I think that's a lost opportunity. We're gonna like we're gonna hurt the development of some players. Because they need that interim stuff. Mm-hmm. The 19-year-old high school kid who just isn't quite ready to go to full season ball. Or the, you know, some college kids. Like your first round, Adley Rutschman, he finished the year at Del Mar because, of course, he was ready. Right. But college kids you take in the eighth round may not be so polished. Maybe he needs to go to the short season league, to a short season league for that first summer. Like, you could, I can make the player development argument that there's value in keeping those teams. Some major league GMs and farm directors would say, yes, we want to keep that extra affiliate. And some would say, no, we, we don't think it's a good use of our money. Give teams the choice. Yeah. Well, Just give it, them the opportunity. Even for some guys in those levels, you know, you'll see them like, oh, he spent two years at A-ball, or is, is he ever going to get out of low A or whatever? Mm-hmm. And then one day a light bulb goes off, right? And it just... Devin Mesoraco from Punxsutawney, Pennsylvania, mm-hmm. um, two full years after his draft looked like a complete bust. He was a first rounder. And then... Broke out the next year. I think he was in double A by that point. Then he, it finally clicked. They don't all develop at the same time. Yeah. Well, look you at know, look at John Means. He was like second, oh, yeah. third in the rookie never, of the year, buddy. Never appeared on any of my prospect lists. Not <laughs> once. And he was very good last year. Yeah. Was an all, was he I, an all-star? I just, he was he their, was their all-star. token all-star. Yeah. <laughs> but deserved it. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But like it was. A, he was their Ricky Batalico. Oh, my God, yes. <laughs> Go way back there. Yeah. Yeah. Throwback. Yeah. I, I just, uh, you know, minor league baseball is. is very near and dear to my heart, especially mm-hmm. here in Newcastle County, where the sure. Wilmington Blue Rocks has been an important part of the community for 25, 28 years, since 1992, yeah. I think, when I was a freshman in high school and would hang out at the hotel where the Blue Rocks 
office was and beg them for game day jobs and harass the general manager over and over again, Ken Shepard. <laughs> but, um, I mean, what they do for the players and the player development is one thing, but what these minor league baseball teams mean to communities is something completely different. Mm-hmm. And, they're, and it's a staple, it's a staple in, there, in the neighborhood. Yeah. And for a lot of these towns, that's it. Yes. That's yes. it. My, my stance on that is similar, but there are some towns where you know, Clinton, Iowa always comes up because it's considered one of the worst facilities in, in minor league baseball. Kinston. Kinston. People don't go to those games. Right. The Appalachian League, which is owned by Major League Baseball, so Major League Baseball can just get rid of it. People don't go to those games either. Many of those clubs average fewer than 1,000 fans a game. Fine. You can eliminate those. I can't argue with that. What I argue with is the elimination of like an entire level where it's quite likely that some of these, some New York Penn League facilities will move up and get full season. You know, the franchise will simply move up and yeah, take sure. over in the Sally League. Yeah, the, the Iron won't. Bird Stadium is too nice to not have a oh baseball my God. team they playing do. there. Major League Baseball has wanted to get something like double-A baseball in the air. Forever. Yeah. As they should, it's one of my favorite places to go to a minor league game. They would love to see a double-A facility in there. But there's, I think, Hudson Valley in New York, which is perfectly fine in a good area and reasonably well-supported by the community. They're on the elimination list. Are they the muck dogs? They're not the muck dogs. That's Batavia. Batavia muck dogs. That's on the elimination list and probably should be. That situation's not a good town, bad facility, and actually currently owned by the New York Penn League themselves because Mm. the ownership group just couldn't. Mm. And you've been to Florida State League games, right? I have been to one Florida State League game in my life, and that was enough. (laughs) (laughs) So a friend of mine from college got drafted, and we went down to watch him play for the Sarasota Red Sox, and it thunderstormed all day, and then it was 90 degrees with 100% or 95% humidity, and about 14 of us in the stands. Yeah. It's it's uh, a safe place to send these players because you can keep all these teams that's within what, a vicinity. Yeah, all everybody's within a mm-hmm. two three hour drive yeah. as opposed to what is it the double A double the Eastern is it the Eastern, Eastern League, League where that's like a ten to twelve hour and even Carolina League still from Wilmington to Myrtle Beach that's a Carolina League spread out a bit. The Sally League is a fiasco mm-hmm. where that's it, league, it runs from league. Lakewood, New Jersey. Yeah. Highly underrated stadium. It also. is a very underrated stadium. Really love that yep. ballpark. Yep. Love watching the sunset mm-hmm. there on a summer game, when it's a summer game, to Rome, Georgia. Those shouldn't be in the same league. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, that's and a big I, gap. I actually would not be surprised. There are a bunch of other realignment proposals independent of the contraction. For example, the Northwest League may actually move up, become a third low-A league replacing six franchises would be eliminated in total from the Midwest League and the Sally League. You could also see the Sally League split, potentially, so that whatever format they use, you're not going from Lakewood to Rome, mm-hmm. right? That's just too long of a bus ride. It's an expense. It's not good for the players. Nobody mm-hmm. likes it. So, but That, this is, that air, air of romanticism of a 15-hour bus ride is... No, ixnay on the, <laughs> on the US Bay. Yeah. Mm. What, what's your, what's your take? And this is a little shifty topic, but to the, okay. to the upper tier of minor league baseball, especially when you look at it from a stadium perspective, like I, I worked in Sacramento. Yeah. I love Rayleigh Field. It's gorgeous, especially with the, the backdrop of that skyline. Covered games in Indianapolis and their, their stadium. You have these, like, they're big stadiums. I mean, they're fairly legit, but I feel like the talent level, or at least the respect for the talent at AAA gets overlooked. You see, I think you see more and more guys coming from AA up, or at least in the Orioles case, they pull a lot of guys from AA up. And that the AAA game is viewed as like you've got a lot of veterans 
who yeah. are the swing guys, the 4A players. It's the taxi squad. Right. So, you know, I, I guess, is there any, like, look f- at doing it, instead of cutting all these developmental areas out, taking some of that top area where these guys have already kind of shown they aren't going to make it out instead? Teams no longer, like most teams would tell you they don't want to send prospects to AAA for a variety of reasons. Like they'd prefer like low A, high A, double A to the majors. There are plenty of exceptions. The Phillies, for example, they really use their AAA affiliate as a AAA affiliate, as a minor league affiliate rather than a taxi squad. It does vary sort of team to team. I think if you see this, all this push through the elimination of some minor league teams, you will see the undrafted kids whom the kids who become undrafted because the draft shrinks, some of those kids get pushed to independent ball, and then some of the older guys who might have filled out AAA end up pushed out to independent ball or just to not play anymore because the I, one of the baseball ideas, as opposed to the money-saving ideas, one of the baseball ideas behind this minor league contraction is to essentially be more prospect-dense at each level. You're not... The, you know, Major League Baseball would tell you we're not getting rid of prospects, right? We're getting rid of the guys who have no chance to get to the big leagues, who are there so the prospects have people to play with. I'm somewhat sympathetic to that idea. I think it's probably an oversimplification, and there are players who were not supposed to be prospects who ended up becoming big leaguers. So we're going to lose somebody somewhere in there. But I think that's what you'll end up seeing happen at that AAA level is that the, hopefully they would get younger and that it does hurt some of the you know the 31-year-old who's, who's maybe been to the big leagues once or twice and is trying to get back in. Maybe he has to go play in the Atlantic League mm-hmm. or one of the other independent leagues. Yeah, I guess that's kind of what I was getting at. You have this infrastructure investment. These stadiums are, are legit, mm-hmm. but the interest, it seems, isn't so much there in drawing from. But that makes a lot of sense. If you're going to eliminate some of that bottom, you're going to push the talent up. That's their hope. Um, we'll see how it plays out because also you can't, you can't like we were saying, five minutes ago can't make that 19 year old be ready for low a when you want him to be. right he's ready when he is and i think even if you push some of that talent into the independent leagues i mean i, I worked in evansville indiana i loved going to otter go otters Fr- yeah. yeah frontier <laughs> league yeah. and the frontier league just expanded but yep. yeah i mean bossy fields like the third oldest stadium in baseball the league of their own the league of their own was filmed oh, yeah. there that was the home field for racing i think in the movie I mean, you go and you could watch, and I don't know where I'd put the talent levels. Maybe it's between A and double A in, in terms of skill. But, like, you can go watch a game and sit first row for $8. I mean, right. like, it's, a good, it's a good time. Yep. So, you know, hopefully pushing, if, if that happens, pushing more of that veteran talent into those leagues might build those leagues up. You might get more investment well, there. Well, it would be better for, it doesn't help the players necessarily. It's better for those leagues. Teams would scout them more. They'd be more likely to sign some players out of there. Sure. I think if they saw them, it, it, it might actually be better for the players in the long, for the players who were good enough to get back to the big leagues, they're better off in that scenario. It's the guy who was good enough to be essentially a taxi squad guy, but probably isn't going to get to the big leagues. He suffers in that scenario because he'll make more, uh, a higher salary in organized baseball than in an independent league. Right. But the guys who were actually good enough, and plus maybe that guy... In theory, that guy who plays for Lehigh Valley all year and just doesn't get a call up because he plays well, but they don't have a specific need. If he goes to the independent league, he really is good enough. He's one of the leaders there. He's raking. Now all 30 teams can go and say, we'll take that and pay whatever your three grand or whatever the fee is to the independent team. Maybe it's more than that. 
and negotiate, that player can then negotiate a better salary for himself. Rather than so being buried. Rather than being buried with no opportunity until he's a minor league free agent after the season, by which point he's lost up to a year of, of earning power. Yeah. And then even for, I guess, a lot of those guys that are in their 30s, they're still, I mean, I don't know, I, the Mexican league's probably not there, but the Korean leagues, the Japanese leagues, and we just mm-hmm. saw Adam All Jones went to Japan. Yep, went to Japan. One of my favorite Orioles and baseball players oh, ever. Guy. Yep. Yeah, just love that guy. Yep. Um, and I was like, you know, when I saw ESPN get the, the KBO deal, I'm like, well, yeah, but get the Japanese yeah. league deal <laughs> so I can watch Adam play. So we, talk, we talked a lot of draft and a lot of minor league baseball, but... I guess this is all moot if we don't have a major league baseball season. So yeah, and I don't know. I don't. I don't really have any answers. You don't. Have, you're not calling uh, the commissioner. I've talked day. to people on both sides, but there's nothing right now. That's yeah. the problem. And th- this is very much a. It's far more a public health question than anything else. Sure. And so you know, I'm I'm listening to the experts. I had one on my podcast a couple weeks ago, an infectious diseases expert. He was actually fairly optimistic that there would be a season. It depends on a lot of things that are some things that are within baseball's control, like setting up medical protocols and safety procedures that satisfy the union, and some are not. You know, Arizona is reopening. Their RT is still well north of one, and they're already starting to reopen. What are they reopening now? Fitness centers and pools. So if their case rate starts creeping up again, what does baseball do if you can't go to Arizona, if you can't have training in Arizona? Spring training becomes summer training. Oh, and Florida too, right? And Florida too. I think Florida's in a little better shape. I may be out of date on some of the the latest numbers, but I know in Arizona I used to live there too, so I'm always kind of keeping one eye on it. And it's like their government, I will be a bit diplomatic here, but let's just say the state government, their general views on matters of science was a major reason I moved out of Arizona into a state where I thought I aligned a bit more with the folks who are likely to be in charge. Well, science doesn't have a political agenda. Science is just No, science. I don't know. I heard yeah. on TV that the jury is still out on <laughs> uh, science. Well, for some people. Yes. Well, we're, we're happy to have you, Keith. Thank yeah. You. Thank you. Yeah. County. It's good to be here. You're not, you're not our newest resident. You've been here for seven years. Yes. And, and, and Delaware authors are kind of having a, a little bit of a moment right now. Oh. You know, Char- Charlie Brandt, who wrote I Heard You Paint Houses, had a massive movie uh, called The Irish Man. I don't know if you've heard about it. Made yeah. out of that. But, yeah. um, I thought it got snubbed. I don't know. So long. No? It was fine. It was long. I would have taken Parasite. Yeah, I'm actually, I may actually still be watching the movie. (laughs) (laughs) But isn't isn't that a requirement? If you make a mob movie, it has to be at least three hours long. Well, Scorsese, if it's under three hours. Right. Did you even make make a movie? (laughs) I was a Parasite guy, so I was very happy with the results. Parasite is legit. I I, uh, I can't even remember who I was pulling for at the time anymore because that was... It was. This wasn't that long ago, that right? Was six years ago. It was <laughs> so long this ago. Is, this this March was a full year. March was <laughs> the longest decade of my life. Yep. Keith, what do you what do you like about Newcastle County? What do you like about living here? It is uh, honestly the biggest thing for me is that I'm in the middle of everything. You know, I have the advantages of living in Delaware. Of living in a nice suburban area that's pretty quiet. I like the no sales tax. I won't I won't lie about that. Hey. It's working out pretty well for us right now yeah. that sales of everything have stopped. Right. Like, we're not necessarily that's hurting true. from that as much as we are the loss true. of income tax. But That's true. I'd, you know, flip side is I'd like to see some more money in education here. But I will say, like, from a quality of life perspective, within two hours, I have all of these major cities. I like the city of Wilmington. I am thrilled that Bardea is back doing takeout. We already yeah. ordered from yeah. them once. We're planning to do it again. Shout out to Bardea. Favorite restaurant here. Very good pizza. Very good Everything. Don't sleep on the pizza. Mm. No, the pizza is good, but everything yeah. there is spectacular. Yeah. Like we, there's a lot of local businesses around here that I really like. It's it's a, 
a very comfortable community where we've, you know, we found a lot of people to support here and have sort of settled into the community. My partner is a Delaware native, she's born and raised. And so she's also kind of pushed me to get to know more stuff around here too, because I'm so, so transient at this point, having lived in four different states, five different states, one, two, three, four, five, five different states. You know, she encouraged me to sort of put down roots more and get to know more local businesses and local organizations. And you know what? There's a pretty good, vibrant, very supportive community here. I feel like I'm part of something as opposed to just living in yet another suburban neighborhood. But also, I can be in New York in an hour and a half. Yeah. Right? D.C., Philly. Yeah. D.C., all of that. Oh, I got to Philly. Boston, a few. Pre-shutdown, pre I mean, I have the Philly magazine list of the top 50 restaurants in Philly. And we were checking them off. <laughs> How many of these could we go to? And yeah. Love this one. Hated this one. Oh, can't wait to go back to that one. I was this close to going to, what was this? Uh, Zahav? The new pasta place that the uh, the big restaurant tour, not Stein. Um, tiny little pasta bar, Italian restaurant that only had like 12 seats. Oh, really? With this massive like cash register from the 1890s. Oh, is it a Stephen Star was, restaurant or no, Fetri? No, it was more Fetri's. Okay, sure. Yeah, 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 it was in South Philadelphia. Oh, okay. It was harder, harder to find a seat than a parking spot. And that's bet. saying something in South oh, Philadelphia. Oh, my God. His, his stuff is amazing. Yeah. yeah and his um, Mastering Pizza Cookbook is I got a little like outdoor pizza oven, mm-hmm. that uh, wood nice. pellet pizza oven, yeah. and his dough is the one I use for yeah. that. It's tremendous. His well, book you, is tremendous. You, um, you know, you talked about living, you know, in North Wilmington, and shout out to our uh, our library that's pretty close to your house. I go there uh, all the time. We're did. did. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, did. Yes. Good. I will. All right. RIP libraries. No, no. And that's one of the things Newcastle County does really well is yeah. the parks and the libraries. Libraries Tally, are great. Tally Day, not too far. Uh, but I... You know, talk about going to the baseball, like if we're going to have a season, I have kids, you have kid, you know, you have a daughter. Do you see yourself taking your family to a baseball game? Not this year. Not this year. Well, there won't, we won't be able to. There will be no fans this year. Yeah. Absolutely do not believe we'll see fans this year. I would go, as a member of the media, if there's no fans and I can just sit in the stands yeah. and watch the game. The Baltimore lockout game right. experience. I wouldn't want to sit in a press box necessarily. Sure. But... Typically, what I do is sit with scouts anyway, mm-hmm. bring my radar gun and my video camera, do my thing behind the plate. And I don't, you know, I will talk to scouts if I'm there, but I don't have to talk to anybody to right. do my job. I'm right. there to evaluate players, and I can do that by myself. Right. So I would do that. If the Blue Rocks were to have games, I know they're probably not going to, but if they were to have games and it just meant I sat by myself in a whole section behind the plate, okay, sure. I'd feel completely fine right. doing that. I do not want to go somewhere where I'm surrounded sure. by other people. You know, this thing that Wisconsin's Supreme Court made that ruling and they're packing the bars, bars there. Yeah. Y'all, oh my God. Y'all, y'all. No. How ironic no. was it that they, no. the, the Supreme Court justices all made that ruling on Zoom socially distanced. Yeah, right. That no one had to socially distance right. themselves. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm glad I'm in Delaware. Very happy to be here. Good. We're glad safe. to have you. So, uh, <laughs> we'll protect you. <laughs> yes. I, so my wife's from uh, Vancouver Island where yeah. my yeah. family's are from. You know, we moved here in 2013 about the same time uh, you would have. And I think it was kind of the same timeline for her. The longer she's been here, the more it's like starting to grow on her. Oh, yeah. We will eventually move out that way. But yeah, I think she's had a lot of the same feeling. The parks kind of suck yeah. you in. The parks are big. And then, you know, for the same thing too, whenever her in-law or her, her parents, my in-laws come out. The proximity to everything. I mean, we've gone to New York, Philly, D.C. They've come and they, you know, they, they were going to come out this spring for her birthday. And they were talking about taking a train down to Savannah, you know, like, because sure. you can just do that. You can yeah. hop on an Amtrak train. So that's, 
I mean, I grew up just over the line in Cecil County, so I always knew mm-hmm. Delaware. But since living here, I, I have I have allowed myself to become a Delawarean. Good. And well, I think, you, you both need to develop your backstories a little bit more. As you know, being, you know, going out with people, you know, that are from Delaware, the next question is, what high school did you go to? Mm-hmm. So you have to develop a backstory. Oh, sort of we, we, mean we, we need to adopt <laughs> previous Delawarean lives? Yeah, Is that what yeah. Some okay. sort of elaborate backstory. Yeah. Uh, you know, where you played your little league, where you went to grade school. Oh, yeah, yeah. You need all of that. Yeah. But don't, like, don't pick like Sally's or St. Mark's because people yeah. will know. But, but talk about going to games. Um, I have three boys. We, you know, we're, it's a baseball. We're a baseball family. And for us to not have our season as of now, yeah. as of this year, um, it's given us some time to reconnect as a family, not running, not sure. you know having three games in three different places at three different or at the same time. But uh, I, I miss a lot of things, and I'm not going to complain because you have to take stock of what's important to right. you. Right, we're healthy. Yeah. What employed. What do you 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 like to eat? Yeah. You like baseball. Yeah. What What else? What are you missing right now? The The biggest things I've missed are yeah, I absolutely miss going out to eat, trying new restaurants, things like that. But I left Cook, and so is my partner. So we've been sort of alternating, mm-hmm. trying out a lot of new things at home. So we, you know, we we make that work. It's not like I'm missing food. I miss some of the restaurant experience. Right, right. But also the, you know, I had a book come out in the middle of this, and I didn't right. get to do. I had five bookstore events scheduled, and those are really wonderful. Mm-hmm. Meeting fans, meeting readers, having them come and tell me some way they connected with something that I wrote. It doesn't even have to be in the book. I don't care if it's in the book. They connected with some blog post I had or something. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's great. Like that, I absolutely love that. I miss meeting fans, especially that environment. If you come to someone's book signing, mm-hmm. it is there's intent there. Those are the people yeah. who, they're yeah. my best readers. Yeah. They're the ones who've found the most value in my work, and they're the ones I most want to meet, of course. It's a little different. I've, I meet fans at games sometimes, yeah. but that's different. But they're taking time. Right. Someone chose. They're getting to take, in line. They're buying right. the book. They're spending an hour. Knew they were going to be there for two hours or more. Yep. You know, so yeah. Yeah. That's, that's how long those lines are yeah. for your books. I miss Absolutely. that more than anything else. Yeah. So we've been going for for an hour, yes, which I mean, I could go for like five more because I, I miss I, baseball so much. I but. think uh, Keith and I's first in person conversation, I think, were uh, macarons or mac- what is it? Macaroons? Macarons. Macarons. Yes. Macarons. Uh, I think we sat for almost an they hour. They have it. That's De La Cour, another local place. They have a. S- Sign open at uh, Independence Mall. Yeah, too. they had a they opened there March first. Nice. They opened right before. Yeah, because I was just there to get takeout from Takumi, another place I like, mm-hmm. another local mm-hmm. restaurant mm-hmm. supporting. Yeah, yeah, we we uh, Delacour in the city had their uh, a sidewalk sale where they. Why were you brought stuff was, in like right I when they opened? Yeah, yeah, yeah. From up from up until yeah. too, but I went to their sidewalk sale and they had people wrapped around the block like three times. That's awesome. But uh, as long as they were all six feet apart. Yeah. Yeah, but those those places are hurting right now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. for sure. Support no, your local restaurant. I'm yep. we're we're big homegrown fans in Newark. I've been going to homegrown since I was a, in high school <clears throat> as a kid, and we try to get takeout there pretty frequently. So yeah. Keith, I, I'm super pumped that you made the time to come in. Thanks for having uh, me. Spend some time with us. Talk yep. a little baseball. Talk yeah. a little bit of life. Yep, absolutely. They're both intertwined. Yeah, and you know, any, any anytime you need to get your fix and come back, we're more than happy to have you. Sounds you're, great. You're a, you're the probably the most experienced pod guest we've ever had. Oh, in terms of doing interviews, yeah. a thousand percent. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, yes, yeah. yeah. I've been on both sides, right? I have my yeah. own podcast, yeah. and now I've done this. So yeah, thanks for having me. It's been yeah. my pleasure. So thanks. the book in. Inside Game, follow up to 2017 Smart Baseball. And if you don't have Smart Baseball, another fantastic book. Yeah. Grab it, Amazon or Father's Day's coming up. Bookstores. Father's Day's coming up. 
This yes. is a good way to get mm-hmm. your baseball fix. And Father's Day is big for baseball books and big for business books. So the hope is, yes. And hopefully, together. hopefully we will have some baseball to watch. With not Father's not, Day. Not in person, but give me just give me something to watch on TV. If, it's, if, if it happens, it's going to be July, not June. You, for regular season games, do you think we'll have a pre-run-up with some mini spring training thing? Maybe. Maybe yeah. late June. Uh, who knows? Right. Who knows? Yeah. We, I mean, again, there's been – that's a whole separate conversation. Yeah. The two sides have to agree on a lot before that happens. Yep. Yep. And, and we're, what, a year before a CBA, too, so – that's yeah. lurking in the background. Mm-hmm. Yep. yep. Okay. All right. Well, topic for another podcast. <laughs> they Absolutely. should be doing the CBA now while yeah. they're doing nothing. Yeah, well, <laughs> they have to settle this before they can do right. that. This is yeah. like a mini yeah. CBA. Exactly. All right. We can keep going, but yep. Kyle. All right. Thanks, guys. Thanks, Ian. Thank you. Thanks, Kyle. Yes. Kyle. We had Keith Law in here. We did. Yes. That was before the weekend. Mm-hmm. Did you have a good weekend? We had a great weekend. Thanks yeah. for asking. What'd you get up to? A lot of gardening. Yeah, same. Working on the green thumb. Got my uh, Delaware Nature Society native plants yes. in the ground. Yes. We bought way too many of them, but but we got them in the ground. Also started binging your, well, binged, because I watched the whole thing, your new favorite show, yeah. Outer Banks. <laughs> Big fan. Yes. I've been enjoying it as well, but I have not finished it yet. Oh, you haven't finished it yet? No. Oh. I was uh, preempted last night to watch Taylor Swift. Oh, no. What, did she do, like a free concert? She did a, she did a, she, they aired her pre-recorded concert from France, so it was good to see live music, because I think that was the last three weekends before COVID, I went to concerts. Do you have, like, a thing where you'll watch stuff from before COVID? And look at people too close to each other and be like, oh, yes, oh, yeah. yes, oh, yeah. yes. That keeps oh, yes. getting me. Oh, yes. I'm like, you just spit in that guy's face. That's yeah. going to kill him. <laughs> I know. It's like I keep having these momentary lapses where I'm like, no, you're. Get, why is no one spaced out? It's going to get that way with face masks at some point. Yes. People aren't going to be wearing face masks and we're going to be like, what's wrong? Oh, that's right. This was recorded from the before Pre, time. Pre-corona. From the long, long ago. Yep. Do you watch The Blacklist? I have not. Great show mm-hmm. going into its eighth season mm-hmm. on NBC. Mm-hmm. Um, but they, so one of their characters died. Mm. Brian Dennehy yes. uh, died. Big big John. No, what was his name in uh, Tommy Boy? Big Tom. Oh, yeah, Big Tom. Big Tom. Yeah, Big Tom. He mm-hmm. died. Mm-hmm. So no one's really sure how that's going to get mm. handled. They also had only shot half of the finale, and they animated the missing parts oh. and had the actors voice it over. From home, it was interesting. Like a cartoon, yeah, kind of like like comic book L.A. noir style gotcha, animation. Gotcha. It was mm-hmm. interesting. I could have waited, mm-hmm. but who knows how long mm-hmm. it'll be? And plus, one of the guys died. So you know, yeah, weird times. That's um, its own way to kill. Be yeah, a cartoon. So anyway, fact checking. Yes, some stuff. Mm-hmm. Mostly ourselves because mm-hmm. we say dumb things. Mm-hmm. Keith knows frequently. Keith knows way more than we do about. He's every, super smart. Everything. Yep. He's a really smart guy. Very smart. But he's not like. You know, some people are really smart, and they, like, make sure that you know it. He's yes. super chill about yes. how smart he is. Yes. Every uh, time I get near really smart people, I'm bound to say something stupid. Well, that explains <laughs> most days for you. <laughs> Thanks, <Scott. laughs> Appreciate it. I love you. Uh, so we were talking about Dan Gilbert mm-hmm. and his love of Comic Sans in a rage press release mm-hmm. he wrote. Mm-hmm. A little background. In 2010, LeBron James left the Cavs. 
and went to Miami. Mm-hmm. That was his famous not one, not two, not three, not four championships he was going to bring to Miami and the decision. Mm-hmm. Dan Gilbert was super mad. I don't know why, because everyone in their right mind saw it coming. Dan Gilbert was the owner of the Cavs. Well, mm-hmm. is the owner of the Cavs. And so he <laughs> issued a press release about LeBron James leaving in the Comic Sans font. And mm. if you don't know that font, you probably use it because mm. anyone who does know it knows full well that it is the worst font ever made. Except for elementary school teachers. They're cool. Maybe, they can use it. Maybe for children. Yeah. But that's the problem is right. it is a kindergarten font right. and no adult should be yes. using it. No CEO of a major. No. Right. Ever. Sports um, franchise. But then I also mentioned that he, as the owner of Fathead, mm-hmm. was selling the, the Fatheads of LeBron James that they had left. They were for seventeen dollars and forty one cents. If you've mm-hmm. ever ordered a fathead, they are considerably expensive, hundreds of dollars sometimes. And he made them seventeen dollars and forty one cents because that was the mm-hmm. year Benedict Arnold mm-hmm. was born. Mm-hmm. I said it was seventeen something or other because uh, of the year he You're was caught close. or whatever. But I was I was close. Seventeen forty one when um, he was born. Of course, none of this precluded Dan Gilbert from welcoming LeBron James back to the Cavs when they won their championship. It's all about tickets. All about. Winning and championships and tickets. Yeah. So so that was that was a minor thing, but we wanted to make sure we had it right yep. on the record. Yep. Other now than, our listeners are smarter. Now you're smarter. Now yep. you're closer to and Keith. Now Hall. you know. And now you know. I mentioned Sam, yep. our former former intern. He actually was not drafted. He was an undrafted free agent. UDFA. Of the St. Louis Cardinals. Mm-hmm. So he was not taken in the twenty sixth round, so well I said. I don't know where I got that from. But Sam was an undrafted free agent for the Cardinals. And uh, when he showed up to camp and had his physical done, they found out he had a torn UCL, mm-hmm. and they were not, they were not going to keep him. They told him you could go to independent ball and fix it, or, or not. And he said, "That's a that's a long road to recovery. Mm-hmm. I'm going to go back mm-hmm. to school." And then he wound up here, and now there he's working go. for the state. So there I think, think it's working out for him. Good dude. Wish um, him well. You were trying to remember when the Blue Rocks came to town. Their first season was 1993. 27 years ago. What did I say, 92? You said 25 years ago. So it was 20. That was last year. 27 years this season mm-hmm. would have been there. Yeah, we it's don't like know. F- you're going to fact check the fact check. <laughs> the fact check and the fact checks. <clears throat> I mentioned Bossy Field in mm-hmm. Evansville, Indiana. Mm-hmm. If you've never been to Evansville, Indiana, and I imagine most of our listeners have not, mm-hmm. um, but it is a cool little town. Yeah. It's a little Wilmington-esque. It is the third It is the third oldest baseball stadium in active use. Professional. Professional yep. baseball stadium in mm-hmm. active use after Wrigley and Fenway. And it is home to the Evansville Otters, an independent team. But it was in the movie A League of Their Own, home mm-hmm. to the Racine Bells. I mm-hmm. was correct about that. And that's a big thing in that town. They have to, there's a Racine Bells Day. The there's They have mascots. The... They have women that go around as, like, they're serving you in the boxes. They're mm-hmm. dressed in the uniforms cool. from League of Their Own. Cool. It's a big, big deal there. You mentioned, okay, so you you mentioned, like, the Dominican baseball player age yes. thing. And so background on this, in 2003, and I remembered this vaguely, but mm-hmm. I had no idea it was this big mm-hmm. at the time. After 9-11, INS started, like, really looking into foreign everyone in the country. Mm-hmm and a lot of foreign players in baseball. And they identified 550 cases, 99% of which from the Dominican Republic. Uh, this is according to an article in the Chicago Tribune from 2003 of, of fake birth certificates for players. And in some cases, they were using relatives' birth certificates as their own. One pitcher for the Padres used his sister's birth certificate and had convinced the Padres he was 24 when he was, in fact, 29 years old. 
another player, Jonathan Corporan, had gotten a $930,000 bonus from the Dodgers because they thought he was a 17-year-old absolute fireballer pitcher. Turned out his name was actually Reyes Soto, and he was 21 years old. Hmm. They knocked that signing bonus down by $800,000 for that. Yeah, that's tough. But they kept him. The fact that he lied about who he was was not enough. They're just like, we're going to need some mm-hmm. of that money back because mm-hmm. you're four years older than we thought. Right. So, um, He's not a mature 17. Yeah. So, uh, obviously, since then, the government has cracked down mm-hmm. on that significantly. And now baseball, you know, we, we see development facilities in the Dominican. There's a Dominican League. There's mm-hmm. a lot more a lot more work there to, to tighten some of that stuff up. So that's, um, that's most of it. One thing, too, I just wanted to clarify. Keith mentioned RT uh, when talking about getting people back, mm-hmm. the RT in Arizona. And so when we look at... We're trying to trying to look at infection rates mm-hmm. or infection mm-hmm. spread of mm-hmm. the coronavirus. You'll hear mm-hmm. a lot of people talk about R zero or mm-hmm. R. Mm-hmm. The lower the lower that number is after the R. Mm-hmm. Generally, we're talking about the number of people mm-hmm. that one infected person mm-hmm. can spread coronavirus mm-hmm. to. Right. So generally, you hear R number. R T. Mm-hmm. Our number looks at that. Just general spread. R T. Right. Because Keith is a super smart really statistic-heavy guy, RT looks at that number, but then also over time. So uh, it's uh, that's what he was talking about there. So gotcha. we're not going to get into the details of all of that, but mm-hmm. basically just know Keith all super smart, way smarter than us. Got it. But yes. a really, really awesome guy. Yeah. And it's great to have him. I would, have him back once baseball starts. I would do 17 more podcasts yeah. with him about baseball. Yeah, but that's all the facts. But you can listen to him on the Claw Chat. You can, yeah. So like, his own podcast. we 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 got to plug. Keith has his own podcast, mm-hmm. and so if you want to hear more of Keith, for sure, get on your favorite podcasting platform. Gave my dad the book today. Couldn't wait till Father's Day, so that makes me have to buy another Father's Day gift. <laughs> you couldn't just <laughs> tell him it was an early Father's Day gift. Yeah, but that doesn't count. Got to deliver something on Father's Day. It's true. I usually take my dad out like golfing on Father's Day, mm. but. You can still do that. Not really. Take separate golf carts. The, the, I, we're not allowed guests. Ah. Uh, yeah. Oh, really? Yeah. You just can't touch each other's um, clubs. Yeah, I guess. Or not, balls. I don't know. You're Literally, there. it's a one-stroke penalty if you touch the flagstick. Oh, that's right. Yeah. That's that's how... I mean, it's good, because I think the golfing demographic is generally older, so mm-hmm. a lot more vulnerable population, but it's crazy. I mean, it's, it's good to see some people taking this seriously, mm-hmm. and like the PGA mm-hmm. saying, hey, we're going to create a penalty around it but that's the that's the world we're living in right now all right good okay so that's facts i think we're i think we're good i think we're good to get out of here yeah thanks kyle yeah man brian thanks for making this keith law thing happen my pleasure all right we'll catch you guys next time bye